Hey, y'all, we are so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. Here's what one of you had to say. Thank you for creating such an informative podcast. I walk away with more knowledge and feel empowered to take action in both my local government and at the federal level. Please keep going. Thanks so much for that review. We're glad you enjoy the show. You can also reach us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Our Body Politic, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the bio. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, founding member of NPR's Code Switch team, sitting in for Farai Chidea. If you've been following the show, and we know you have, you already know a lot about how our democracy works, and you know what happens when it breaks down from January 6th to gerrymandering to political polarization. Now we're unpacking crucial issues you might not have considered. We turn first to what happens on Election Day itself. If you voted in person in the United States, chances are you've interacted with a poll worker. Ahead of the 2022 midterms, the U.S. dealt with a shortage of poll workers. And today, we're seeing alarmingly high turnover rates for U.S. election officials. With so many high-stakes ballots across the country, not to mention the 2024 election, what's being done to address this looming crisis? Joining me now to unpack these issues is Virginia K. Salomon. CEO of the League of Women Voters. Thanks for speaking with us, Virginia. Thanks for inviting me. Excited to be here. Before we get into all the challenges facing poll workers, talk us through the basics. Who are poll workers and what exactly do they do? So poll workers are people who either are volunteers or people who are paid very small amounts of money to engage in their civic duty. And that is helping to ensure that the voting process works. So these are people who, when you go in on election day, they're welcoming you, they're helping make sure that you're registered, making sure that you're on the list, helping escort you to your polling site, whether that's a booth or however it's done in your state, and just really making sure that the voting process is run smoothly. There are also folks who because of mail-in ballots and early voting and other things, there are also people on the other side who are just counting ballots and making sure that everything is received on time. They're counting the ballots. People who are, in some cases, curing ballots, which means, say you got to the polling location and you realized that you maybe didn't have your ID or something, or your polling location had changed, you can get something Mm -hmm. in many places called a provisional ballot. And they just make sure that you still have the opportunity to vote so that it gives you time to go back and get the information that you need. So they're just Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. election assistants. Yeah. And in some cases, um, that's pretty critical out here in um, California, in Los Angeles County. Anyway, we moved a couple of years ago from punching our ballots to totally digital ballots. And it was the poll workers who saved a lot of us by saying, no, no, here's where you start. Here's how it goes. And so I don't know that we would have known anything if they hadn't been able to walk us through that. So we're grateful. Let's start with the issue that's getting the most coverage, though, the rise in threats against poll workers, which we saw quite vividly in the past like 18 months or so. What's happening here and where is it coming from? So I think 
we have to just acknowledge that while voting is not partisan and should not be a partisan act, the people who are voting oftentimes are partisan. And so mm-hmm. we've seen this rise in polarization across the country, people feeling like the election process is either not fair, some people saying that it's been rigged, right? We've heard all of these stories. And so people tend to look at those individuals that they see touching the ballots first and making accusations. We call it the big lie for those of us in the voting rights space, because we know that there have been lies and mis- and disinformation that has been perpetuated, that many people believe, right? And so they believe that somebody's doing something wrong with the ballot. They believe that people are doing wrong things when they're working at the polling locations. And so it's a really sad moment because mis- and disinformation has really ramped up people's beliefs that the elections aren't being cared for properly. And so, um, it's a sad, sad occurrence. And I think it's something that we have to look at how do we continue to combat this and engage people in, you know, just basic civic education, how election administration works. Most people don't know, right? So they're able to create this own narrative in their head. And unfortunately, in some cases, they've been listening to the wrong people. Hmm. I remember back in 20. 20- 20, I guess, um, a Georgia poll worker, Ruby Freeman, was Mm -hmm. targeted by President Trump. And that made national news. And a lot of people assume that Mrs. Freeman and her daughter, uh, who was also targeted by the president, like that this was an anomaly, that it it next to never happens. And, you know, all this vitriol that was directed at them, that was just sort of a one-off. But this past August, a task force at the DOJ charged more than a dozen people across the country with threatening election workers. So that would indicate that the threats are on the upswing? I think you can safely say that the threats are on the upswing. And again, I think Ruby Freeman, I think what was really sad in that particular situation and why it got so much attention was because those threats, those accusations came from a sitting president with a base that is known to be at times violent. Let's be really honest and Mm -hmm. say the thing. I think what made it also worse And I think we have to name the fact that these were two Black women, and Black women tend to be targeted differently than other populations. And so I'm not also convinced that there's not a deep connection to racial discrimination in that particular case. But I would also just say as a whole that, um, again, it's the climate, it's the vitriol, it's what we're experiencing as a country and the polarization that exists that allows bad actors to create a narrative that these individuals who are doing the poll work, who are working our elections, that they are somehow doing the wrong thing. And so we have Mm -hmm. to inoculate against that through really good obviously civics education and information, but making sure that we also don't let the bullies win because they have a a motivation as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was one obvious challenge that people are still talking about, frankly. Tell me about some of the other challenges in recruiting and retaining poll workers. Well, I think the one thing that a lot of people don't realize, or maybe they do, but every time you go in to vote, if you vote in person, you'll notice that the majority of those people who are supporting our elections are senior citizens. Mm 
And mm-hmm. so I think one of the things that contributed in 2020 was just COVID. It was a really scary time, especially because we didn't have vaccines at the time. People weren't sure if they were going to be safe. We saw so many people who had died. And so seniors in particular who are most vulnerable to COVID and people with health conditions were those individuals who often were the first to drop out of doing that work. It Mm -hmm. just wasn't Mm -hmm. safe for them. So I want to just make sure that we're separating out kind of the COVID piece to the threats and fears that election workers face. But as a result, and we saw the reaction that many had to 2020 trying to decertify the election, the big lie, that and what happened to Ruby Freeman, for example, that actually really created a chilling effect because people then started to say, it could happen to me as well. And so you Mm -hmm. had seniors, once again, who were like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with those accusations. And so we saw a huge drop off in older folks for those two reasons. I think, and just, it's not just isolated to election workers, but we've seen, you know, plans to kidnap government officials, like what we saw with Gretchen Whitmer and others. And so Jocelyn Benson, who is the secretary of state in Michigan, who has faced numerous death threats and other challenges. So I think just as a whole, people who work in the election space have found themselves going from being the people that everybody in many ways appreciate it the most because they allowed our elections to run smoothly to positions that are actually much harder to fill. But we do have solutions for it. And I will say that despite the fear, people have stepped up, especially a younger generation um, who have really taken on that charge. And that's kind of one of the things that I really am excited for in this. If there's a silver Mm -hmm. lining, we've seen a much younger demographic step up to do this work. Yeah, in 2020, uh, I actually went to vote in person and saw that there were a few younger people, and I mean considerably younger, who were being guided by older co-workers and were settling into the job. So that was nice to see because, you know, my question was, well, as people age out of doing this job, whether they're volunteers or whether they're getting paid this little bit of money to do this work— it leaves a vacuum that may or may not be filled. So what happens to our elections if there aren't enough poll workers? Well, one thing I will say is that it creates a greater stress, longer lines, mm-hmm. more wait times, right? So these are all things that, quite honestly, are really challenging, especially when you see there are times when people are uh, standing in line for hours. You're in either very hot conditions, very cold conditions, the rain, right? So we see this as another voter suppression tactic. Being able to intimidate poll workers means less people to do the work, which means longer lines. and, And it just creates a chilling effect on voters who say, if they're waiting and they have to get to work, I don't have time for this, right? So it really is a threat Mm -hmm. to our elections because less people vote. And that's at the end of the day, really what it means. Well, and some states have apparently passed laws that forbid assistance to people waiting in line. So if you're 84 and you're waiting to vote, if I come up to you with a portable seat, a little cab seat and say, Miss, would you like a seat? I'm liable to be uh, arrested or fined because I'm not supposed to do that anymore. I'm not supposed to give water to people on a really hot day, um, which seems to be another form of voter suppression to me. Um, So It is. I would just say it is absolutely another form of voter suppression. Yeah, I'm using my rarely exercised diplomatic muscle when I say it seems to be. It absolutely is. 
now that we know more about the scope of this crisis, what do we need to change in order to be ready to vote? So a few things. Um, First, I would say we know what the crisis is, but I would love to talk about the solution first. And Mm -hmm. that is obviously getting people to sign up as a poll worker. And so the league really focuses on poll worker outreach, getting folks to sign up. There's a a site called Power the Polls, and we are a partner with them. And so just to give you some examples, um, in 2022, we recruited 4,057 poll workers just through that site. And then hmm. um, in 2023, obviously this is not a midterm or a presidential, but we've already signed up 2,147 people So there's legislation um, that has been passed to help protect election workers. I think the challenge here is that there's the federal piece, and we know the federal government and especially Congress has just not been very functional these days. Um, So the passage of federal voting rights legislation could even help improve and build upon this. More importantly, though, every state has different election rules. We don't have election rules that are uniform throughout the country. And so Mm -hmm. state by state, different states have different rules. They have different protections in place. But as far as blanket protections that everybody has, one of the sad things is that we truly do not have full protections yet for poll workers. There have been minor pieces here and there, more as punishment or a deterrence to people, you know, who engage in that. But really beyond that, there is nothing that really blankets and protects folks in the way that we think would be appropriate. Being a poll worker sounds like it can be a pretty thankless job between the long hours, the low pay, if you even get paid. I know some people do volunteer and the increased number of threats a lot of poll workers are receiving, either explicit or implicit. So given that, why do you think people still sign up to do this job, this critical job? I will say I can tell you why I've done it in the past, and it really is for me just being able to feel like I was contributing back in some way to my community. I have a lot of young first-time voters. I've had experiences with older voters, and there is something, as hard as it may be on some days, because yeah, the hours are long, there's a fulfillment. Seeing people who have just been naturalized, and all of a sudden, this is their first election. The joy that you see on people's faces and being able to cast their ballot is like, I can't explain the happiness that it gives you in a way that they feel like this is something that, and in many places, if especially if you're naturalized, maybe never had access to in a fair way, right? Or people who, when you're a young person and you're frustrated what's going on with the political process, we see what's happening all over the country and how young people have become more and more active. And so young people seeing that enthusiasm or seniors who are saying, this could be my last election and I'm going to make this vote count. All of those things, you see all of that when you're working the polls. And it is just a very joyous experience. And so if there's nothing else, it's just we all need a little bit of joy right now um, with everything that's happening in the world. And that is one thing you can do that will really bring you happiness. You know, in grade school and I guess in high school civics, they always talk about seeing democracy in action. This really is, isn't it? It is. It is. And it's, you know, it is For many, I feel like you can look at it as a thankless job or you can look at it as the most important job that you can engage in as somebody who is a citizen in this country. 
I'm betting you've inspired uh, more than a few of us. If someone wants to become a poll worker, what should they do? Okay, you can still go to Power the Polls. Um, that's the, the first thing. And so our code, our source code is LWVUS. So people can go to Power the Polls, they can sign up, they will immediately get connected. Somebody will follow up with them, they'll get the information they need, and they'll be able to sign up as a poll worker in their local community. Virginia K. Solomon, CEO of the League of Women Voters, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. The Supreme Court began its new term on Monday, October 2nd. And while the cases on its docket on the surface are not hot-button issues like student loan forgiveness, access to abortion, or LGBTQ rights, if you look closely, and depending on the court's rulings, these cases could impact everyday life no matter which side of the political aisle you're on. Joining me now is NYU professor of law and co-host of the podcast, Strict Scrutiny, Melissa Murray. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. There are a lot of administrative law cases on the docket this year. Why should people be paying attention? Well, as you say, these are not the kinds of cases that draw a lot of public interest because these are not hot button issues. But under the surface, these are the very questions that scaffold our lives and make government run in a way that makes everything sort of seamless for us. So the administrative state is an ever-present feature of our lives. These are the administrative agencies like the EPA, like the Passport Bureau that we rely on rather than having one of the other branches of government like Congress or the executive do these things for us. So the way the administrative state works is that there is usually a statute that Congress Congress has written delegating some of its authority to the administrative agency, which is housed in the executive branch, to administer the scope of the statute. And that gives the agency a lot of range to move. So administrative agencies do legislative functions. They make rules regarding the administration of these statutes. Sometimes they enforce the statute. Sometimes they actually do adjudicative functions. Um, they may actually bring and hear cases relating to the enforcement of these statutes. So they do a lot of different things. And their hybridity has actually raised a lot of questions in recent years, as some on the right argue that the Constitution doesn't specifically provide for an administrative state. And more importantly, these agencies, which are staffed often by unelected and less accountable bureaucrats, are further away from the people and the people's will, but yet wield enormous power in the people's lives. So the administrative state has become really a target of the right in recent years. And there are a number of cases this term that give the conservative legal movement a rare opportunity to take aim and really hobble the administrative state. So we may not be paying attention, but we may feel what happens if we don't at some point pay attention. It's like that old saying, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. That's exactly right. When you have to run to Congress to get your passport, you'll miss the administrative state. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but first I want to get into the CFPB versus the CFSA. A case. The <laughs> Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, is a federal agency that's designed to protect consumers from unfair and abusive practices by banks and lenders and other financial institutions. 
Then there's the Community Financial Services Association of America, or CFSA, which describes itself as, quote, the leading national association representing non-bank lenders that offer small-dollar credit products and other financial services. First, can you share why the CFPB was formed and how it's sustained today? Sure. So Congress created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. And the idea Mm -hmm. here was to give this newly created agency the power to enforce a range of federal consumer finance laws to basically protect the little guy from the kinds of economic shocks that many of us weathered during the 2008 financial crisis. And to help ensure that the agency was independent and insulated from political control, the CFPB purposely receives its funding from the Federal Reserve. So Congress created an external funding structure. The CFPB gets its assessment each year from the Federal Reserve rather than through Congress. So that's the real question for this case, this question of an external funding structure as opposed to a direct Mm -hmm. appropriations from Congress, which is more typical for administrative agencies, but not atypical necessarily. So the external funding was a provision to kind of buffet it from political wins in exactly. either direction. Exactly. Okay. Now, what about the Community Financial Services Association of America, which is a mouthful? <laughs> What's their main function as an organization? Well, I had to laugh a little when you describe them as a purveyor of non-bank, small consumer credit options. These are payday Mm -hmm. lenders. Like, you know, they're exactly the kind of financial institutions that the CFPB was set up to regulate. So when you have that context, it's not surprising that this challenge to the CFPB has been brought by this sector of the financial services industry that is often described in terms like predatory lenders, payday lenders, and things of that nature. Things that are taking advantage of perhaps an unbanked population or people who don't have a whole lot of money to sink into financial institutions. That's exactly right. Um, These kinds of lenders often are situated in minority communities. Um, They target, in many cases, minority communities, individuals who may be skeptical of traditional financial services, and more importantly, may not necessarily have the financial cushion to be able to take advantage of more traditional financial services resources Mm -hmm. with lower interest rates and things of that nature. And so it's really important to note here that these kinds of lenders were exactly the kinds of consumer lenders that the CFPB was set up to regulate. Ironic, isn't it? Weird. (laughs) So then what's being argued on the CFSA's behalf in this case? It would almost seem indefensible. This consumer industry group is basically arguing that the external funding structure that characterizes the CFPB is not only unusual and atypical, it's unconstitutional. And specifically, they argue that the funding structure violates Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, which is known as the Appropriations Clause. And it provides that no money shall be withdrawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. And the industry group is essentially arguing that this means that all appropriations to administrative agencies like the CFPB have to come from Congress. They can't be externally funded. They have to be able to be completely controlled by Congress. And the Federal Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit agreed with them, which is why this is at the Supreme Court right now. So if the CFSA were to secure the win, so to speak, how could this impact the federal funding structure's other government entities? Would Congress perhaps look at 
other entities that had been more independently or less um, less directly appropriated. Yes. And say, well, we should oversee these too, because this is set a precedent. Well, that's exactly the concern here. So when the United States stepped up to the lectern to defend the CFPB's funding structure, one of the things that the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, did was note that this kind of external funding is not that unusual. Um, Certainly, it's not the norm for a lot of administrative agencies, but it's certainly not isolated or novel. There are other federal agencies that do this, namely the Federal Reserve which is externally funded because of the need to secure it and insulate it from the kinds of economic shocks that could bring down the entire financial market and our economy as we know it. Other major pillars of the administrative state the administrative agencies that deal with Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, for that matter, those programs are all funded through payroll taxes, not directly from Congress. So those are external funding structures as well. And if you call into question the CFPB as being unconstitutional under the Appropriations Clause, then the Federal Reserve and a raft of other federal agencies and federal welfare programs are also going to be called into question. And indeed, some scholars have argued If this case succeeds in dismantling the CFPB's funding structure, the Federal Reserve is up next, and this could have a convulsive effect on the American economy, perhaps even precipitating another Great Depression. Wow, that's a scary thought, uh, especially after having lived through 2008, where we were told, well, it wasn't quite as bad as in 1929, but it could get worse, and we need to take some measures for it. Mm. So. Another case you have on the docket, or the court has on its docket, Loperbright Enterprises versus Raimundo, which will now be argued alongside Relentless Inc., the Department of Commerce. And it calls into question whether or not federal agencies should be allowed to interpret their own legal authority, or if this power should be solely granted to federal judges. The Supreme Court will be looking more closely at these cases in January 2024, but both are essentially meant to challenge legal doctrine known as the Chevron deference. First, Melissa, would you please tell us what the Chevron deference is, because I see it bandied about from time to time and how it came to be. And then tell us why it's relevant to what's happening in these cases right now. Sure. So about 40 years ago, the court decided a case called Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. And in that case, the Supreme Court ruled that federal courts should defer to federal agencies' interpretations of ambiguous statutes so long as the agency's interpretation is reasonable. And let's just be clear. Congress writes lots of statutes. They don't always get everything precisely right. So under Mm -hmm. the Chevron doctrine, where there's ambiguity, the agency gets deference. And that means the agency has a fair amount of authority. Now, this was all well and good when the court decided this almost 40 years ago because the agency was the EPA under Ronald Reagan, and they were interpreting a federal statute in ways that actually benefited regulated industries. So conservatives really cheered this Chevron doctrine when it was first announced. But 
in the 40 years since, Chevron really has become a bet noir of the right because it allows agencies to essentially have broad regulatory authority over a range of regulated industries, including the oil and gas industry, um, fracking, financial services, all of that. Um, a lot of places really that want broad latitude to be able to do business as they like without the agency's shadow over them. And so these two cases actually present some very, very sympathetic petitioners. If you've seen the movie Coda, then you're probably familiar with the facts of this mm -hmm. case. Coda involves a family of fishermen who are really vexed that they have this federal monitor that has to be aboard their fishing ship monitoring whether or not they overfish in the waters in which they are doing business. And that requirement of a federal monitor ostensibly comes from an agency interpretation of a broader federal statute dealing with overfishing. And so that's essentially the facts of this case. It already has been a movie. Now it's before the Supreme Court life imitating art, as you will. And so here, the federal agency, the Department of Commerce, has interpreted the statute to require the fisheries to pay for and host a monitor aboard their ships who then monitors whether or not they're overfishing. And again, the interest in overfishing is to ensure that these species remain alive, that it's sustainable, on and on and on. But the fisheries argue that it's a federal program, and the federal government is sticking them with the cost and, again, limiting their opportunity to do business on the way and the terms that they would like to do. Now, in the case of Coda, the fishery was a family fishery that was like four or five people. And yes, so super the business of having, yeah, the business of having a, a federal monitor uh, did seem to be onerous for them because they didn't have that much money to begin with. But if we're talking about huge fishing trawlers that bring in hundreds of thousands of tons of tuna or tilapia or whatever, that's a very different thing. And so exactly. how do they justify the lack of nuance there? Well, one, um, again, as you say, this isn't necessarily a law that was targeted toward mom and pop fisheries, but rather these bigger commercial fisheries mm -hmm. that can have an enormous impact on an ecosystem if they overfish. And that's exactly what this law was intended to combat. And the agency has interpreted it in a way that they believe is reasonable with the tenor of the law to make sure that the businesses have an opportunity to do business, but not at the expense of the environment or these habitat for these kinds of wildlife. And so the question here and what the fisheries are arguing is that this is an unreasonable interpretation of the statute. And in fact, there is no basis to give the administrative agency any latitude or deference or opportunity to interpret the statute. If Congress wants to put a federal monitor on our ships, Congress has to say so in mm -hmm. the statute. The agency can't make those interpretations. And the problem, of course, is that Congress is often writing laws, sometimes with real specificity, but also sometimes in anticipation of problems that it doesn't even really have a clear idea will arise. So, you know, when Congress wrote the Clean Air Act back in the 1970s, it imagined smog in L.A., but it didn't necessarily have in mind the kind of existential climate change crisis that we are experiencing right now. So Congress is writing statutes, but often writing them broadly for a future where it cannot at the moment anticipate what is coming down the pike. And that's the kind of thing that will really be difficult going forward if this 
argument is upheld and the court overrules Chevron as it is being asked to do and limiting the agency's discretion to make these kinds of interpretations that keep the statute up to date with current problems and things that are happening in our economy and in our world. A lot of us are not going to be particularly meticulous in paying attention to all of this. Why should people who aren't as tuned into these issues care about the pending ruling here? So regulation is what makes a lot of things safe for ordinary people like us. So, you know, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration is a federal agency that's charged with regulating workplaces. Like, there are lots of employers who hate OSHA for a lot of different reasons. It makes it more costly Mm -hmm. to do business, but it also keeps individual workers safe. So there's a trade-off here between the liberty of those who are being regulated to do business as they would and those who are sort of in the path of that kind of business to be safe, um, whether it's those who are eating the fish or who would like to eat fish in the future and those who are seeking to earn a living from fish. So again, there's this real tension here between the liberty to do business and the sort of collective interest in a safe and sustainable world. Okay, so we're going to be waiting to see what happens there. While we do that, let's take a look at gun rights. Earlier this year, we explored the intersection between reproductive rights and firearm access in the U.S. with my fellow co-hosts, Karen Atia, who led a panel discussion at Wesleyan University's Center for the Study of Guns and Society on how and why gun violence is a reproductive rights issue, too. Part of that discussion explored the Second Amendment case, United States v. Rahimi. Tell us about this case and why it's so important. Well, Rahimi is a really interesting case that gives the Supreme Court an opportunity to clarify what it meant in its last major gun rights ruling, which was in 2022, announced just the day before the court overruled Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Dobbs. They announced New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, in which the court struck down New York's handgun licensing scheme. When the court struck down that handgun licensing scheme, it said that Going forward, the way to understand whether gun safety regulations were constitutional was to determine whether or not the regulation could be fit into a broader history and tradition of firearms regulation in the United States. Was there an historic analog for this present day regulation that we could date back to 1789 or some other time in our Mm -hmm. history? If that was the case, then the regulation in the present day was likely fine. But Federal courts below who have had to deal with and interpret this Bruin decision have had a really difficult time trying to understand exactly what the court meant in its direction to find a kind of historical analog for these modern-day gun safety regulations. And so with Rahimi, the court has an opportunity to really clarify it. The case involves a man named Zaki Rahimi, who was involved in five shootings between December 2020 and January 2021. And the problem with this, in addition to the fact that he's a little trigger happy, is that Zaki Rahimi is not supposed to have a gun at all. In February 2020, after his alleged assault of his girlfriend, a protective order was imposed that specifically barred Rahimi from having a gun. Now, after Mm -hmm. these five shooting incidents, Rahimi was charged with violating a federal law that bars anyone who is the subject of a domestic violence restraining order, as Zaki Rahimi was, from possessing a gun. 
The question here is whether that federal law is constitutional. Zaki Rahimi argued that it wasn't constitutional, and he asked two lower courts to dismiss his indictment under those charges. In both cases, a federal district court and then later the Fifth Circuit initially upheld that federal law that disarmed those who were subject to a domestic violence restraining order. However, after the court announced its decision in Bruin in June of 2022, the Fifth Circuit went back and said, hey, wait a minute. Let's look at this again. And they reviewed the case again and determined that because there was no federal analog for a law disarming those subject to a domestic violence restraining order, this particular federal law was unconstitutional under Bruin. And and to be very clear, the Fifth Circuit is exactly right. There is no historic analog for a law that disarms those who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders, but that's largely because in our history, we've never really prosecuted or enforced domestic violence as a crime. And so we've never gone through the steps of disarming those who have been accused of or convicted of domestic Mm -hmm. violence. You know, we didn't start dealing with domestic violence until the 1980s. And prior to the 1980s, men had wide discretion to discipline members of their households, including their wives, so long as they didn't impose permanent physical injury. So with this history in mind, it's unsurprising that there is no historical analog for this present-day federal law that disarms those who are subject to a domestic violence restraining order. And so here, the court really has an opportunity to either clarify what could be a true absurdity, like, you know, just because something wasn't dealt with in the past means we can't deal with it right now in the present under the Second Amendment. Um, And it really has an opportunity to safeguard those who really are in vulnerable positions vis-a-vis those who actually are armed. And the United States government, who stepped in here to defend the law, argues that This federal law, although it has no precise historic analog, is part of a larger tradition of disarming people who, like Zaki Rahimi, are not law-abiding, responsible citizens. And so it's going to be a real question whether the court takes that broader view or whether it's going to require a precise historical analog. Given that, what should people understand about the impact of the possible outcomes of the court's ruling in Rahimi? So this is going to be a huge ruling in either direction. Um, If the court says that, yes, this law is fine and upholds it, it's going to send a message to the lower courts that when they're trying to apply the Bruin test, it's not the sort of precise, direct analog, but maybe more in the spirit of historic regulation. If the court credits Zaki Rahimi's argument that you have to have a precise historical analog, then that means there are a lot of modern day gun safety regulations that are going to fall by the wayside because we don't have a history of prohibiting that historically. And again, domestic violence is one aspect of that. There are other kinds of civil restraining orders, again, that are sort of a new and recent development in law enforcement. Um, We've had criminal disbarment, but civil disbarment, that's a new thing. And so there'll be a lot of new laws that sort of turn on the question of those civil orders that will now be threatened, perhaps even challenged in federal court going forward. So this is a case that either way is going to have enormous repercussions. Finally, as we're all painfully aware, there are major developments happening domestically and internationally that have taken over the news cycle that might bury reporting about the cases on the Supreme Court's docket. How do you suggest our listeners, Melissa, especially those who aren't as familiar with judicial processes, stay current with these cases and the rest of the cases being decided this term? 
So one, you could listen to our podcast, Strict Scrutiny. We'd love to have you there. We talk about the court every single week. We go over all the oral arguments that the court is hearing, and we talk about the different arguments that are being made both in court and that the justices seem to be making in their oral arguments. And we talk about all of the decisions as they come out. But we as a country have been a little inattentive to the Supreme Court. We focus a lot on who is the president, what's going on in Congress. We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks thinking about who's going to be the Speaker of the House of Representatives. We have to understand that in our current environment, the Supreme Court wields a lot of power. Um, Congress is really polarized. It's very hard for Congress to get things done. A lot of the movement in trying to sort of shape a domestic agenda is happening outside of Congress and often happens in the court. So, for example, when Donald Trump campaigned on getting rid of Obamacare, he was never actually able to do that in Congress. John McCain very famously voted thumbs down on repealing the Affordable Care Act. What did the right do? It rushed to a district court in Texas to challenge Obamacare. So the courts have become a way, ironically, of advancing minority rule by pressing your causes in what is effectively and was by constitutional design supposed to be a counter-majoritarian institution. So it is to our detriment to ignore the court. There's lots happening at the court right now, and I'm not just talking about private jets and boondoggles. Like, there's real stuff happening that's going to affect all of our lives, and we have to really be trained on the court and following it really intently. We have to think about the court as being as impactful as any other branch of government. And certainly the court is as impactful of any branch of government. We've seen the travel ban fall in the court, the question about the census fall in the court. We've seen Roe versus Wade fall in this court. So for good or for ill, the court is having major, major impact on the lives of everyday Americans, and we ignore it to our peril. I want to ask you one more question. What does the public's engagement with social media reveal about our ideas, our ideals around free speech? I mean, I don't know that, for instance, Clarence Thomas or Neil Gorsuch sits down and scrolls through Twitter or X, but I would assume that they may take into consideration some of the things they Mm -hmm. hear or that other people tell them that they're hearing on social media. One thing I'll say is that the sort of external chatter around the court, whether it happens on social media or in the sort of mainstream legacy press, the justices hear it. For some justices, it may make no difference at all. In fact, it may even stiffen their resolve. Like if the public's against me, then I know I'm doing the right thing. But I also think there are other justices, um, maybe more institutionally minded justices who understand that the court is in a really interesting position vis-a-vis the other branches. The president has the power of the sword. Like, you know, the president can command an army and get things done, as President Eisenhower did in desegregating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in the 1950s. Congress has the power of the purse. If Congress wants you to do something, it can just withhold your funding until you do it. The court doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have the power of the sword. The court has only its legitimacy. In order for us to obey the court and to abide by the court's pronouncements, 
we have to believe that the court is playing by the rules, that what they're doing is law and not politics. And so when we are on social media or in the press raging that, you know, this looks super partisan, like this didn't happen until Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and her seat was filled by another conservative, this looks like partisan politics. I think that actually does make a difference to some members of the court who recognize that public legitimacy is the only way for the court to have any institutional standing. I think it's great that people, for whatever reason, are focused on the court, but I don't necessarily think this kind of scrutiny is intended to delegitimize the court. I think it's really intended to try and get the court back on a straight line with the public. Melissa Murray, NYU law professor and co-host of the excellent podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, sitting in for Farai Chidea. In an already complicated U.S. healthcare system, unfair treatment by your medical professional can make access to good care even harder. Last year, the California Healthcare Foundation found Black Californians often adjust their behavior or appearance out of fear of bias and discrimination in care. So how can we eliminate biases embedded in our healthcare system? Joining me now is writer, artist, and doctor, Shirleen Abobi. Shirleen is a third-year cardiology fellow at the University of Chicago, where she completed a residency in internal medicine. And she recently became a contributor for Well and Being with The Washington Post. Shirlene published her debut novel, On Rotation, which tells the story of Angie, a Ghanaian-American enrolled at an elite medical school. Welcome to the show, Shirlene. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Karen. We're really happy you're here. You have a lot of different roles and specializations in your title. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got here. For sure. I always say that I am a doctor, artist, and author in no particular order because I think all of those seemingly unrelated titles actually mix very well and inform each other very well. I have been drawing and writing to express myself since I was a little kid. Actually, in my medical school admissions essay, I wrote that I wanted to be able to use my writing and my storytelling skills to help address healthcare inequities because I had a belief at the time that being able to craft a story is integral to being a good physician. Your contributions in Well and Being for the Washington Post are on a wide variety of topics. You write about fat shaming, patient bias, and cardiology. Where do you come up with the topics and who are you hoping to reach? As a physician, I'm also a patient often, and I move between these two roles all of the time. I'm also a Black woman. Um, I'm a Black woman in a mid-sized body, and I have to navigate both the professional aspect and the personal aspect of that. And so some of those interests are just interests that I have, but a lot of them are issues that I have seen my own patients face. I want to confront issues that I see patients talking about online or to me uh, that I hardly ever see healthcare workers really interfacing with. So my I call myself almost more of a canary in a coal mine. I like to bring issues to light and to start conversation. Can you give me a couple of examples of what your patients have responded to talk to you about bias or that you've maybe observed it yourself as you've gone through your workday? 
Yes. So the article I wrote about fat shaming was really inspired by a number of patients who have come to me into the office and have either expressed that they had not been listened to, that their symptoms were not being worked up, or they had been repeatedly been told to lose weight. Um, and later we would find out that, say, they had a rheumatologic disorder, or potentially, I remember one woman actually had a abdominal catastrophe happening. She needed to have surgery. She'd gone to two other ERs, and nobody had bothered to do a CT scan. They just basically told her that she was fat and having a bellyache and sent her home. You see these issues of bias in medicine where, you know, we are missing sometimes very straightforward diagnoses because we're clouded by a judgment. And now as a medical professional, I'm also having to often interface with a lot of the systemic issues of healthcare. And I also come with a lot of empathy for myself and for my colleagues. A lot of us are really pushed to our limits and expected to perform well and at our best and at our most empathetic with very little support and very little attention to our own physical needs, right? All that being said, patients are still being harmed. And I think I, I want us to be able to address that, improve that, and talk about it. I hear a lot from doctors that things have gotten exponentially worse since COVID reared its ugly head. Do you feel that way now? And is that also your opinion? And in what ways have things gotten worse in terms of your ability to serve your patients? I agree that things have gotten worse. I think there are a few reasons why. Number one, people are sicker than they were before. We don't fully understand the effects of COVID yet. We do know that people were ravaged by the pandemic. We lost a lot of people. And the ones who are left behind have symptoms and we don't fully understand those. So that's one aspect of it. The other is that the powers that be realized that we could do with less uh, during the pandemic when healthcare workers were being lauded as heroes, we were often asked to stretch our resources extremely thinly. We did more things online. We managed patients over video and through in-basket messages. We had massive shortages. And what this taught a lot of hospitals and a lot of administration is that we can survive on that, but it was not meant to be sustainable and it was not meant to, to take care of a population that is as sick as it is now. And in the middle of all of this, you were also writing fiction and nonfiction, as I understand it. I'm wondering how your creative writing and your art fit into or contrast with your professional life. You know, on the one hand, you're rooted in science and technology. And on the other hand, you have this very creative spirit that feels the need to express yourself in a completely opposite way, almost 180 degrees opposite from the evidence-based scientific part of you. Are they complementary? Is there this tension? How do you manage that? I think there's sometimes tension because sometimes the evidence isn't humane. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes the things that I care about from a scientific level might not be what my patients care about or even I care about as an artist or as a human being. I'm in a field that really values evidence-based medicine. I mean, if you look into cardiology, we have studies for everything, every drug, every procedure. We speak in terms of, oh, is this a randomized controlled trial? Is this evidence strong enough, right? Despite this, we still use, for example, 
race as a scientific variable, which is something that sociologists and geneticists in the 70s first said was unacceptable. The tension that is there mostly arises when I am trying to figure out how to communicate a topic that I feel is emotionally charged for a lot of patients, but maybe is scientifically based for a lot of physicians. For example, certain medications, like I'm a cardiologist, I like statins. I prescribe statins all the time. The evidence behind statins is vast, and they are cheap and readily available, and they prevent heart attacks. But there is a lot of Mm -hmm. emotion If you go online, you'll see all of this information about how they're terrible for you and how people have had horrible experiences. And as a scientist, I want to say, you know, you're wrong about this, right? The the evidence speaks to the contrary. As an artist and as a human, I understand why people are hesitant to put an unknown chemical in their bodies that sometimes makes them feel bad. I understand why people are called to anecdotal evidence over scientific evidence. I think Mm -hmm. in trying to bridge that gap, I try to use anecdotes to speak to the science so that I can kind of help people better understand or at least relate to what they might be hearing in the doctor's office. You know, I think before we started speaking, you asked me, how do I manage my time? How do I even fit writing in? And the answer is, at least for on rotation, when I was walking around the hospital, I would write on my phone. (laughs) Sometimes it's a quarter mile, half Ah. mile from patient rooms. And so I wrote most of on rotation on my phone. I think that it is very easy to develop compassion fatigue in healthcare and that forcing myself to constantly reflect and to step back helps me maintain my empathy. It helps me put myself in my patient's shoes, even when I am in extremely frustrating situations, and helps me retain my humanity. And in a lot of the work that I do, I want to highlight the humanity of not only patients, but also the people taking care of them. I want people to walk away from my work having learned something Right, having give, been given the opportunity to reflect as well and to think about how the issues I bring up in my stories and in my art may um, impact to them or speak to their own experience. And I, I want them to understand a little bit about how the sausage is made um, as well. Let's talk about your debut novel, On Rotation, that follows the story of a Ghanaian-American going through her medical training How much of it is fiction and how much was inspired by your own real life experience, which I found myself wondering as I went through the book? So what I always say about on rotation when I get asked this question is that, you know, my whole life I grew up reading about white women authors from upstate New York because most authors are white women from upstate New York who maybe are writers and work on publishing. And I wanted to write a story that reflected my experience, the experience of a Black woman in medicine, a dark-skinned woman, which is one that is not frequently told. Angie is not me. 
I I often have to preface that, but she does have a lot of experiences that I've had, which is why I think it was important for me to write this story. When I was building her character, I wanted to write about the immigrant experience. I wanted to write about this incredibly pivotal period in the third year of medical school, which is when medical students go from being mostly in the classroom to actually interacting and interfacing with patients. And I wanted my character to really inform readers what it is like to move through the American healthcare system as a Black professional, but also as a Black professional seeing Black patients. So I am at University of Chicago, which is in the South Side of Chicago. Most of my patients are Black. Most of them are African-American. One thing that happens so often as a Black trainee, I see and I'm expected to become the spokesperson for my Black patients. I have a comic that showcases my avatar talking to her team. And the team, it wants to call CPS on a patient because she brought her daughter in with burns on her back. We should say here in many states, CPS is Child Protective Services. In Illinois, CPS is called the Department of Children and Family Services. And her daughter got these burns because she dipped her synthetic braids into hot water to set them. The team doesn't believe that this makes any sense. And so in that moment, I have to become a cultural broker to prevent this woman from losing her child. And on rotation, I show other incidences. One very pivotal thread is that Angie wants to study Black patients and is told that she should not do this, that it will harm her career because it will pigeonhole her as just another Black medical trainee looking into health disparities. And I wanted to highlight this because many of us are affected by health disparities. And yet within the medical field, it is considered a lesser area of interest. And it actually could affect her career negatively to investigate them. When I started using my profile to talk about bias and disparities, one of the most common bits of feedback that I would get from my attendings was that I was very brave to do so. Because medicine does not like to look inward. We are still a very conservative and paternalistic profession. We have a, an entire history that is, you know, outlined very well in medical apartheid in which we have been the contributors and perpetrators of an ex a significant amount of harm. And we don't like to face that. We like to consider ourselves as adhering to evidence-based practice, but often will ignore evidence when it comes to issues of race or gender Pushing against that and saying, hey, that maybe we don't do everything right, maybe we can do better, is controversial. Mm -hmm. It's making some people uncomfortable, I would think. Yes, exactly. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You've talked about the medical profession having a hard time looking inward to examine its own bias. Is there something that's missing in training doctors that would allow them to take a long-distance look at themselves and how the system's serving its patient population if they've just spent decades just ignoring it. Is there something that they're doing now or that you think they should be doing now that they weren't doing, you know, 10, 20 years ago? I think the biggest issue is representation. I think this has gotten better because representation in medicine has improved. 
I am a Black woman in cardiology, and I'm also mm-hmm. a African immigrant. So I'm from a self-selected group of people who already have a lot of advantages considering they were able to come to the United States in the first place. If we look at the percentage of Black physicians, period, who are American descendants of slaves, that number becomes atrocious, right? Then if we look even at the number of people who come into medicine who have chronic illnesses, who come from low-income backgrounds, who really reflect our patients, we'll see that there are very few of them. Something like 75% of medical students come from the top two quintiles of income in the United States. So how can you understand Mm. the difficulties of taking care of your health as an average American if you don't come from a family who has ever had to deal with that? You then have to expect people to have deep-reaching empathy, which a lot of people do. But it isn't necessarily something that we should assume people will have. I also think that medical training itself is invested in making us less empathetic. If you see more patients, you do more procedures, you make more money for the hospital or for yourself. So actually... Thinking and caring about and spending time with patients is not profitable for anyone. It doesn't help anyone but the patient who's right in front of you. And very few people care about the patient who's right in front of you. So I think we need to really adjust our incentive structure within healthcare entirely to really get to the point where people in mass invest in eradicating biases in medicine. I think that shows that you're juggling all these things just beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) We had your 2022 book. Is there a sequel? Is there a different piece of fiction that's maybe coming down the pike in your copious free time? There is, actually. My second novel, Between Friends and Lovers, is going to be coming out in July of 2024. So keep an eye out for it. That's just what the doctor ordered. Some romance in these very dark times. Dr. Shirlene Abobi, artist, writer, author of On Rotation. Get it, go read it. And cardiology fellow at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Karen. It was a delight. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter, where we share additional insights and resources for the OBP community. Check us out on Instagram at Our Body Politic and click the link in our bio. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Karen Grigsby-Bates. For Rai Chidea, Nina Spensley, and Shanta Covington, our executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Andrea Aswahe, Anne-Marie Awad, Natina Bean, Morgan Givens, Emily Ho, and Monica Morales-Garcia are our producers. Amelia Schonbeck and Monica Morales-Garcia are our fact-checkers. Our associate producer is David Escobar. Our technical director is Mike Garth. This program is produced with support from the Certina Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.